Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. Now, nonstop sports talk continues with news and analysis from the lead writer of 1045thezone.com. Not the hero. We deserve to be the hero we need. This is the Big Six. It's going to be you. With your host, Jason Martin. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. Straight up 6 o'clock here on my watch says it's time for the big six. time for me to go to work here on 104.5 The Zone. My name is Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. Please follow me there. 615-737-1045 if you want to join the program. A lot to get to tonight. Warren Sharp coming up in the next segment. If you have not heard him on this station before or in other interviews, he's an analytics guru. Puts out one of the most detailed NFL previews you will find anywhere. I'm going to talk to him about the Titans. I'm going to talk to him about analytics as a whole. It's going to be a fascinating conversation coming up in about, I would say, 15 minutes or so. So stick around for that. I tell you, I'm not going to waste your time. This is edition number 23 of the Big Six. So let's talk about Hard Knocks last night. It is undeniable that this is good TV. Basically, since the beginning of the series in 01, the cameras followed the Baltimore Ravens, the defending Super Bowl champions. I know that pains Tennessee fans to hear that because many of you out there still believe, and I'm one of them, that had the Titans beaten the Ravens in that playoff game, they probably would have pulled down that Lombardi trophy. It felt like the de facto Super Bowl. There was no hard knocks between 03 and 07. In 07, Paul Rudd actually took over for Liev Schreiber for one year because it was the Kansas City Chiefs, and that's Paul Rudd's team. We've seen the Ravens. We've seen the Cowboys. We've seen the Chiefs. We've seen the Bengals, the Dolphins, the Jets, the Falcons, the Texans, the Bucks, the Rams, and now the Cleveland Browns as part of Hard Knocks, giving this HBO crew the leeway to film on-field activities, off-field activities, all sorts of stuff. Even the dull years of this show have highlights. The show is incredibly well done. It's pretty much can't miss. So last night I'm watching the first episode to see what the storylines are going to be for the Browns. And I kind of put a list together here. Baker Mayfield arrives and begins his journey and the quarterbacks have an RV. Jarvis Landry is a star wide receiver that has a catchphrase and some choice words for weak or soft people in his position group. Josh Gordon, not there to start camp as he's been advised by counselors to do more rehab work. Coach Hugh Jackson loses his brother, loses his mother in about a 10-day span and fights to continue doing his job. Linebacker Christian Kirksey likes to drum as a hobby, has access to a studio to do it, also a vocal leader during team meetings. Todd Haley and Greg Williams are still Todd Haley and Greg Williams. 
And Hugh finally has to pull out an old Al Davis quote, which is, if it's your team, you can do whatever the hell you want. They were having a disagreement over days off and things like that. We saw spotty wide receiver play, a lot of drops on one particular day that was focused on about midway through. And then there was defensive end Carl Nassib attempting to explain the concept of compound interest to the rest of his room to show them what putting a little of their money in the bank and leaving it there could lead to down the road. And he also proposed to Taylor Swift. So all in all, is a really good start to the season. But I continue to have questions about the series as a whole. Now, there have been a lot of teams, we know this, that have turned it down over the years. And the NFL finally stepped back in in 2013 and said, look, if nobody volunteers, we might just force you to be the focus of the season. They have a stake in the show. They like the exposure it gives the league. But if I'm the Cleveland Browns, as woeful as I've been, and I'm Hugh Jackson, 1-31, needing desperately a good year, wanting to work hard, what is the benefit that I get from Hard Knocks cameras being positioned all over the place? It's just another distraction, right? That's usually how I feel. This year, I actually feel differently about it because when you're coming off a winless season, a dreadful winless season where you had yet another quarterback try to win games for you and Deshaun Kaiser and prove that he was not the guy. What exactly do you have to lose? When I ran down that list and read it for you a little while ago, all those storylines, many of them, not all of them, but many of them paint Browns players in a positive light. Now, I think we've known this for a little while. We've known it for a minute, but Hugh Jackson's a good guy. He is a nice man. He comes across like he loves his players. He wants to be great at his job. Back during one of the Bengals years on Hard Knocks, he was kind of the star of the whole deal for me. He's a candid guy. He's an open guy. He doesn't curse nearly as much as many of his counterparts do. And he comes across pretty genuine to me. So if there's an advantage to Hard Knocks for Hugh Jackson, it's that we all of a sudden kind of want to root for that guy to succeed. And that's before they talk about the painful deaths in his family and how he was forced to try and deal with those and how his team and that front office rallied around him. Then there's Baker Mayfield, a guy that I'm surprisingly finding myself liking more and more by the day. Now, I couldn't stand this dude until about midway through last season at Oklahoma. But when I hear him speak now, or when I watch how he seems to be approaching his gig... I've been impressed. He's a rookie. And you know what? Tyler I. Taylor also comes across like a rootable guy. But if you remember the Jets year on the show, if you do you remember John Connor, the fullback that Rex and the team started calling the Terminator? Obviously, because his name was John Connor from the actual movies. He became a fairly big name because of how he was featured on that show. Not really a big name in the league when it came down to it. But that's the thing that can happen with hard knocks. And when you're, when you're the Cleveland Browns and you're 0-16 and Hugh Jackson's 1-31, that can actually mean something. And then we get to Jarvis Landry. A bunch of one-handed catches, some blessing moments, and then an incredible speech to the locker room that I thought I was not going to be able to play for you because I thought it would just come across like an R2-D2 wrestling promo or an interview. But... JT, being the star that he is, found a way to make this work about as good as he could. With 35 bleeps, Jarvis Landry became the star of the hour because of this. I don't know what's been going on here. And I don't know 
why it's been going on here, but this, if you're not hurt, like if your hamstring ain't falling off the fucking bone, your leg ain't broke, I don't know, like you should be practicing, like straight up, like that's just weakness, and that's just contagious as and that ain't gonna be in this room, bruh. That shit been here in the past, and that's why the past has been like it is, bruh. That shit's over with here, bruh. If you can fucking practice, fucking practice. You can't get no better. Ain't nobody gonna get better by being on the fucking sideline if you ain't fucking hurt. If you're not fucking hurt, you gotta fucking practice. Because you make other motherfuckers work even fucking harder. Now they have more risk of getting hurt because you don't want to practice. Because you've been a bitch. Straight up, man, that's just fucking real, bruh. That shit ain't happening here. No, that shit not fucking happening here. I'm hurting, I'm tired just like everybody in this world. But I ain't taking no other days off because I can't be put that way. That gotta be the attitude and the mentality all of the time. All that week, don't fucking live here no more. That shit don't exist. It's contagious, bruh. Like, it's really contagious. It's you get the feeling that Jarvis Landry wouldn't care about a GPS tracker on his uniform. I'm not saying anything there. I'm just saying, seems like to me, he probably wouldn't care. But he becomes a star last night. Now, when you talk about great wide receivers in the league, nobody really talks about Jarvis Landry. Not in a grand scheme. A lot of you out there don't know much about Jarvis Landry at all. But now here we are, and now we're paying attention. The cameras are catching a few players on the sidelines, remarking about how good he is, watching him make highlight plays during team drills. So this year, if you're Cleveland, it's almost kind of smart. The Browns have been such a joke for so long, and now they're basically part of a great drama on HBO. But then there's the other side to Hard Knocks, and I think this needs to be thought about, and that, that goes along with the great TV. It makes us sometimes believe that these teams that we're seeing might be more talented or cohesive than they actually are. We cannot judge camp effectively based on slow motion camera work and high budget production and highs and lows. We only see what they choose for us to see. So Jarvis Landry was last night's star. I'm going to read this directly from an article in the Palm Beach Post. Don't be duped by the Dolphins' spin as they try to justify dumping a 25-year-old who would have gone on to be the most productive receiver in their history. They'll point to Landry's uneven temperament, locker room concerns, and his improvisation on the field. While there might be some validity to that, far more egregious transgressions have been overlooked. Funny how none of those objections surfaced until it was contract time. Gase used to joke about Landry, Jay Ajayi, and him being the three hotheads on the team. In his first year coaching Miami, he said flatly Landry was the best offensive player he had. There was no one he trusted more. This is really about the Dolphins grossly misjudging what this kind of talent is worth, and that'll prove to be a fireable offense for whoever had final say on it. They'll realize it quickly when they see how difficult it is to replace a man who totaled 400 receptions, 4,038 yards, and 22 touchdowns in four years. The franchise never had a 100-catch receiver until he showed up and did it three times in his four seasons in the league. Landry wants market value. How audacious of him. And the Dolphins don't agree with his asking price. Everything else is a footnote. The reason I read that to you is because we didn't hear that story last night. Landry's been great. You heard those stats. But as we're getting all that wow stuff last night about him, it would have been nice to also have addressed 
the questions as to why Miami let him go. Was it the money? Was it temperament and locker room concerns? I mean, that speech last night would have been a perfect moment to bring that up. It seems like Cleveland might have gotten a steal. Seems like. The Dolphins pointed to his money. And I read a couple of articles about it. They said, look, he did most of his work out of the slot. And unless you're going downfield like Julio Jones on every play, you're not worth that kind of cash. His yards per catch were under nine. That's not top flight. The money he wanted would have put him solidly in the top 10 of all wide receivers in football. Reports say Miami basically offered him around 13 mil a year for four years. He believed he was worth 14 and a half or more and perhaps a longer contract on top of that. But we didn't hear a word of that last night. And then we see Mayfield, we see him making these throws and Hugh raving about him. But a lot of those throws, we didn't actually see where they went. I'm not saying that they were lies. They, I'm sure that they were not. But it's easy to kind of sugarcoat and make things look one way on hard knocks because it is a television show. Great TV, no doubt. The best reality TV imaginable. But I, I'm going to tell you, I wonder if Landry actually cuts that promo in that room if he doesn't know HBO has a mounted camera in the corner of it and he's going to get on air. I have often wondered how many guys play it up or ham it up to be on hard knocks with some moment that makes the fans fall in love with them. If you listen to that, there's not a soul out there that didn't want Jarvis Landry on their team right now immediately. But I would have loved to have heard the rest of that story. And sometimes you don't. We got a lot of this RV stuff and healthy snacks and, and all of this. I would have liked to have gotten a little bit more meat on the bone to explain how a guy like Jarvis Landry ended up in Cleveland in the first place. That's just me. I've got more thoughts on Hard Knocks later on. 615-737-1045 if you want to join us. Warren Sharp joins us next. You do not want to miss this. If you're an NFL fan, dude will make you smarter. That's what we try to do around here. It's the Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. It's the Big Six, 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin at J-Mart Zone. A little drive-by truckers for you here tonight. Outfit off of Deco- Decoration Day, the name of that album. Talked a lot of hard knocks there in that first segment. We continue the football conversation with somebody that ultimately will make you smarter anytime you listen to him. He's Warren Sharp. You can follow him on Twitter at Sharp Football. Go to the website at Sharp Football Stats. He puts out the 2018 Football preview every year. Probably the most detailed preview out there. We'll make sure that we uh, put a link up to that on my Twitter at jmartzone here in a minute. Warren, how are you tonight? I'm doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, So yesterday I said on this show something that wasn't popular among some here in Nashville that I I feel like Marcus Mariota, as great a dude as he is and as much as people here want to see him succeed, might just be a rich man's, not a poor man's, but a rich man's Andy Dalton. A little bit better than Andy Dalton. Not that they play the same, but they're basically around an eight or nine win quarterback, just good enough to keep you out of the top ten most years in the draft. Now, if you've got everything around them playing well, it's perfect. Maybe you can win in the playoffs with them if you get there. Now, you look at numbers, and you deep dive into everything in advance of releasing this preview book every year. To you, who is Marcus Mariota as a football player? Well, I think it's difficult. You know, you look at his couple of years in the NFL with Terry Rubisky and this uh, Mike Malarkey exotic smash mouth style offense. And I, I just feel like uh, between his health and the scheme that he's been in, we haven't been able to see the, the, the apex. You know, it's kind of like an iceberg. We don't really know exactly what's underneath that surface of the water yet until we get a more 
uh, a better head coach and a better offensive coordinator who's going to be do- dialing up more things that are to Mariota's strengths, more offense that's efficient, more intelligent level of play calling in general to maximize the overall efficiency of that offense to present more red zone opportunities. Uh, and so maybe we will start to see that this season and maybe we'll get our first real look underneath the water. It's definitely still early enough in his career where it's okay if we don't know exactly what he is right now. And I think that's where I'm at. It's hard to really, obviously we know he's not going to be a Drew Brees, Tom Brady type of quarterback. He's not going to be Aaron Rodgers, you know, a transcendental type of quarterback that's just obviously off the charts, but he does have the opportunity to be better than what I think he's displayed, but it is going to take a little bit of time and it's going to take the right system. And hopefully you guys are on the right path now to being able to showcase that. Ask you about a couple of other guys and then, then kind of analytics as a whole, but two guys that people around here are very curious to see on this offense. You write about very differently in your preview. The first one is Dion Lewis. He comes from New England. Based on your numbers, he is an outstandingly efficient player that could really do good things for Matt LaFleur. When you talked about Mariota, you talked about struggling in the 11 personnel where he really did struggle last year. And that's a grouping that LaFleur apparently loves. That's one run, running back, one tight end, three wide receivers, if you're confused out there. Now, the Titans did it 43% of the time last year. The Rams, 81% of the time. You also said, though, about Deion Lewis, he's really good in 11 personnel. So when you look at Deion Lewis, what can he do to make Marcus's job easier, keep these chains moving both as a receiver as well as a speed back? Yeah, I, I love Deion Lewis because he's so dynamic. You can do a lot of different things with him. Some people think that he's more of just a passing down type back. But out of 49 running backs with at least 175 carries the past two, two years, only two of them recorded four and a half yards per carry and at least a 53% success rate, Ezekiel Elliott and Deion Lewis. Now, I understand Lewis was with a better team last year with Tom Brady and that offense, but we're talking about the entire league. And he was that guy. No other running backs on his team were there. It was him. And he does possess a a great nose for short yardage situations. You can use him out of the backfield. He's just such a dynamic uh, playmaker that what he's going to do for this offense is keep the plays on track, keep the offense on schedule, not lose those, none of those, you know, first and 10 handoffs that are going to gain one yard. Hopefully not having like a second and long handoff that's not going to gain anything and present you with third and long. But more importantly, you're going to be able to utilize this guy as a receiving back out of the backfield. And hopefully it's not on third down because that's the least efficient time to throw the football to a running back. Most efficient time is on first and or second down. And you get a lot of efficiency throwing the ball to a running back, especially one like Deion Lewis, who's got the moves, who's got the ability to get open in space and then make defenders miss. So I hope that they use him enough as a receiving back out of the backfield, but I'm encouraged by the fact that when you stick him on the field, the defense isn't going to know what's coming because you could do so much with him that he's not just a receiving back and he has to, he has to spell Derrick Henry in that manner. Absolutely not. You can utilize him interchangeably with Derrick Henry in most every situation you would want Derrick Henry. Deion Lewis can do a very similar set of things and sometimes in many cases better. Warren Sharp, our guest here on the Big Six. And then the other guy is Corey Davis, fifth pick in last year's draft. Dealt with the hamstring. He missed a little bit of time, certainly. But here's how you wrote it. Quote, he disappointed in a big way in 2017. His 42% success rate was more than 10% worse than that of any other Titan with 50-plus targets. Unquote. Then you went in and said, 
his 5.9 yards per attempt or yards per was pretty down as well. So when you look at this new scheme, and again, we have to kind of see how it plays out, but when you look at LaFleur and you look at what might change there, what do you think is reasonable to expect for Davis this year as long as he's healthy? Yeah, if he's healthy, the targets are definitely going to increase. So we're going to expect more usage out of him. Obviously, you don't have Decker there anymore in the offense. I think they will. It's very different because some of the things that the floor did with the Rams last year, they didn't have a really reliable tight end. Whereas here, they've got Delaney Walker, who led your team in targets last year by over 25 more than anybody else on the team. So you've got a guy that you can utilize there. So maybe and maybe they'll keep using a lot of 11. Maybe they'll uh, integrate a little bit more 12 or 21, which is two running backs, one tight end. You could stick Dion Lewis out there as a, as a playmaker in addition to having Henry in the backfield. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for uh, Corey Davis to get some of the mismatches. And that's one of the things that's scheming up these mismatches, not just sticking a receiver out there and asking him to run around and beat his defender, but actually by based on the play call and when you're calling that play, as well as potential pre-snap motion, you are giving that offensive weapon an edge before that ball is even snapped. And inherent with the play call is another edge where you don't just have to beat this guy. You're having assistance with the route combinations to get this guy into a better mm-hmm. situation to catch the ball and run after the catch. So I am encouraged and I hope that we see the ceiling because there have been a lot of first round, you know, very high first round wide receivers that have not ended up playing well in the NFL. And hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully he gets back on track. He certainly seems like he has the talent level to do that. It's hopefully like Mariota we talked about earlier, it's just a matter of the scheme not being right for him in the past. And let's hope it's better this year. How successful, this is overall league question, how successful do you expect the RPO to be? Now, it's obvious a lot of teams are going to use it more often after seeing it last year. But we also saw New England stop the passing portion of it pretty effectively in the Super Bowl. It's not like the RPO is brand new, but there seem to be more concepts, a little bit different brand of quarterback out there, more athletes, maybe a different mentality. Do you look at the league and think, all right, the league's going to have adapted to this a bit more than some of these OCs might be anticipating, and maybe it's not going to be as effective going forward? I don't think so. I think there's still going to be a lot of times to situationally utilize it and, mm. and utilize it in a very effective manner. And the reason why is because it's not like the Wildcat where you have the ball in the hands of a running back. And it's not like your traditional running quarterback where you're just going to ask him to do a zone read. And mo- many of the times that guy is going to be running the football, putting him in harm's way. With the RPO, it's literally the quarterback's number one job to read the defense and either throw the ball or hand it off. He's not the one who's going to be running the football. He's not the one who's putting himself in harm's way, and he is the number one passer on that team. So you have the ball in the number one passer's hand, and he's just reading a key on the defense to try to always make the defense wrong. If they shift a little bit towards the way the the offense is going, then they can come back with the pass the other direction. If they don't and hang back, then you stick the ball in the belly and leave it there. So there's just, in, in generally speaking, the um, play action, which is what the RPO is a lot of times designed off of, you're utilizing the ball, sticking it in the running back's belly. That is such a big edge towards just getting the defenders, especially linebackers, to take one false step or hesitate for one split second. And at times in the NFL, that's all that it takes to gain that extra advantage that you need to get a ball directly over their head and sink it down into the space right behind them. So whether or not teams are good at running the football, play action works. 
And I think RPOs, as long as they're done effectively and you can contain the immediate pass rush so that you have that split second to stick it in there or pull it out, that's the key. If, you, if the pass rush is going to get to you too quickly, you can blow it up. But if you have that time to do, utilize that, I think it's still going to have situationally a lot of effectiveness in the NFL this season and even into the coming years. You write in the introduction to the preview that your dream – basically, is to lessen the quantity of inefficiency we watch on TV every week in the NFL. That basically the game would become smarter. Now, I want to get you back on at some point and really talk about analytics as a whole, but maybe in a minute or so, do you feel like the league is starting to believe in terms of investing in analytics, studying this kind of stuff, and actually using it to their advantage? Do you feel like the game is getting smarter that way? To, to some extent, yes, and I'm actually going to tweet out a video that I recorded earlier today about this very subject. My concern is this. You have the coaches that are more so on the hot seat of teams that aren't so good. You know, the teams that are supposed to be 7-9, and 6-10, and 5-11, that aren't going to win this season, that they don't really feel like they can incorporate too many analytics or things outside the box because it's less familiar to the coach, and he might be in his last season you know, or, or one more year. So they don't really want to try anything too dramatic or dynamic. But the reality is those are the teams that need this incorporated the most because they may not have the most talent on their roster. And so they need literally every single edge that they could possibly get. And that's what analytics provides, is provides a shortcut to try to make efficient decisions on the field. And without that, they're not going to have the extra edge. Meanwhile, the best teams, the teams that have the good records already, that have coaches that are going to be more tenured and aren't fearful of their jobs, are focused on one thing and one thing only, that Lombardi trophy and how difficult it is to attain. Therefore, they're more willing to go outside the box to exhaust every type of effort and opportunity to utilize analytics to find extra edges for their upcoming opponents, especially those that they'll meet in the postseason. So you have this divide between the teams that are bad that could use it the most but aren't willing to make that investment out of fear and the teams that are good already that are the ones that are utilizing it more often. So I think it is being incorporated more and the more often that we get younger, more sophisticated and offensive-minded coaches to replace those older school coaches on the losing teams like Kyle Shanahan, like Sean McVay, and, and they can utilize more of those schemes and do things in a more analytically intelligent manner, the better off the future of the sport will be. But for now, we still have this divide where you're going to have some teams that are going to utilize it more and more and get better, and other teams that are going to be too fearful of utilizing it, and, and they're going to stay pretty mediocre to poor. Warren, what you do is just incredibly impressive. Every time I open your preview, I learn a lot of new things. I can't sit there and read it for six hours because I need too much headache medicine at that point in time. But I go back to it <laughs> frequently, and I love it every year. I will make sure to tweet out that link. I hope that we uh, catch up with you again here in a couple of weeks and we can deep dive into more of this. But what you do is awesome, man, and uh, keep up the good work. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for having me on. I'd love to come back and, and deep dive a little bit more. So thanks again. Appreciate it. That is the great Warren Sharp. Follow him on Twitter at Sharp Football. Dude is ridiculously smart. And the way in which he lays this stuff out is kind of incredible in this magazine. And this uh, preview that's basically, you know, 250, 300 pages to get you set for the NFL season. I will tweet out that link at Zone. On the other side, my thoughts on Jalen Hurts. What he had to say and maybe what he didn't know that everybody else did. That's next. Big Six, 104.5 The Zone.
It's a big six, 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at jmartzone. Well, not a surf for you. Killian's Red bringing us back. Thanks to Warren Sharp. I will tweet out a uh, link so that you can pick up that book. If you want far more information anyone should ever have, especially if you're a gambler, dude has made a lot of people a lot of money understanding tendencies and knowing efficiencies and things like that. No one does it quite like Warren Sharp. Absolutely love that guy. We will have him on pretty frequently, I would think, as we move through the NFL season. But the Sharp football preview every year is an absolute gem. So we talked about hard knocks. And one point that I did want to make quickly about hard knocks just overall is, I don't know why, if you're not the Browns, I don't know why you would want this around you if you're a team. Seems like it would be so hard to control this kind of message. NFL teams are fiercely protective of their brand. They are super protective of their culture, especially the intricacies of it. But think about what you saw last night. You saw the LeBron James banner go down. You saw Kirksey drumming. You saw the compound interest speech. You saw the RV and snacks. What you saw was a lot of fluff that made you start to like certain guys a little more or at least know them a bit more, like their TV characters. What I can say after last night is I still love this show. I have no idea if the Browns are going to win a game this year. I have no idea whether or not they're more or less dysfunctional than I thought before I watched that episode or anything else. You just have to watch this as a TV show and just as a TV show. Not attempt to interpret it any more than that. It's not. It's just not going to help you. So Jalen Hurts talked. The Alabama quarterback who was benched for Tua Tongo-Vailoa in the national championship game against Georgia Wants to start, obviously. And I feel bad for this guy. He lost two games at Alabama in two years. One of them to his arch rival. And the other due to an all-time great quarterback performance in a national title game from Deshaun Watson. And if you remember, Hertz actually scored. Had a breakaway quarterback run straight down the middle of the field with about two minutes left. I was standing on the sideline, blessed to be there, believe me. And I remember looking up at that scoreboard and thinking there's too much time left. The defense is gassed. That Bo Scarborough injury changed that game. There were a lot more plays being run in the late third and fourth quarters. They were beat. They were tired. They were gassed. And Deshaun was just on another level. So were his receivers. It was like all of them had glue on their hands. But even with that, Hurts gave Bama the lead in that game. Dude's record is unreal. Only two losses in two years. And he knows he's not the starter at Alabama. So he comes out and he talks. And he says, look, I've been a little miffed with the lack of communication from the coaching staff about the competition for the job. I was going to play the audio for you, but that's basically what he said. Lane Kiffin said a few months ago he thought Saban would play both those guys in the opener to keep one from transferring because Nick wants them both on the roster. There's one problem with Hurts' comments. If you remember, I talked to you a couple of weeks ago about being in the locker room after Alabama, Georgia, doing a Fox Sports Radio interview, trying to uh, get Calvin Ridley on their evening show. And so I was right next to Jalen Hurts during his interview as all the reporters in the room wanted answers. And they all wanted the same answer. And he was so classy. And he stood there with a grin, with a smile, and thanked his coach and, and did all the right things in that moment and, and gave Tua a lot of credit and was just happy for the win. But the problem with what Hurts said this past weekend is that nobody really thought Tua wasn't the starter after that game. 
Jalen Hurts is a stellar football player. He's been a good leader. But he's not a great quarterback because he can't throw. I, I would love, folks, to see what Calvin Ridley's stats would have been had he had Rosen or Darnold or Deshaun or Baker Mayfield or somebody that is accurate and somebody that can throw it and sling it to him trying to get the ball to him. I'm not sure, honestly, in terms of pure skill as a receiver that Ridley's not better than Amari or Julio Jones. He's at least on their level. At least. Watch how good he's about to be in Atlanta. It's going to be gross. So Hurts is... I don't really want to say this, but he's hurt. He believed he could still win that job, but nobody else did. I'm not sure he didn't make himself believe it. Maybe his dad made him believe it. I don't know. But I knew as I'm sitting there with my head craning watching Tua's game winner beat Georgia in January that Jalen Hurts' time as a starter in Alabama was over. Jalen is seeing a dream die right in front of his face right now. And I totally get that he wished he got more from Nick Saban or more from the OC or anybody else about his chances or where he stood. But one of the reasons, folks, that Alabama is Alabama is because it's not a friendship circle. It's not kumbaya. It's not sing-alongs. There's no participant ribbons. It's not a summer camp. Alabama football, maybe more than any program in recent memory, it's basically a Fortune 500 business. Nick Saban is a CEO. He might love you, but he's probably not going to tell you so very often. He's got agendas. He's got games to win. When you, when you go to apply for a job, can you expect whoever it is making that hire to continually, day by day or week by week, keep you in the loop as to whether or not you're high or low on the list? It probably drives you crazy that you can't get returned emails or you don't know whether or not you're a finalist for a few weeks or whatever it is. But unless that boss is a moron, the more he says, the more he's liable and the more he's setting you up for a potential fall. Like You might want to be the project lead at your office or, work, or your factory or wherever it is that you work, but you know only one person can be. Maybe you're really good, but the other guy or gal is just better. That's Jalen Hurts. He's a solid football player. A lot of places would be really lucky to have Jalen Hurts at quarterback. But maybe not Bill Gates. Maybe not Steve Jobs. Maybe not Warren Buffett. Maybe that's not the best place for you. Maybe if you're Jalen Hurts, Florida Atlantic would have been perfect. I know Lane wanted him. I know Nick wants him around, but I also know what you all know and what Nick also knows. That is that Tua Tongo Vailoa gives you the best chance to win at Alabama, and he can actually throw the football. Nick Saban's a CEO. He's basically in charge of Hooli for, for uh, Silicon Valley fans out there, but he's far smarter than Gavin Belson ever was. I feel really bad for Jalen Hurts. But Jalen Hurts expected to be treated like he was not playing football for Apple. That he was not playing quarterback for Microsoft. But he is. Maybe he needs to start polishing that resume and putting in apps at, at Dell or at Samsung. Those are also great companies. They could use a young man like him. Like I said, he's classy. What he said, I don't have any problem with what he said except that it rings false to me because I know as soon as he watched Tua, he knew, oh, okay, this guy's better than me. He can throw the football. This is a problem. I only lost two games. This shouldn't have happened. Unfortunately, sometimes life just stinks. One more segment to go. This is a big six on 104.5 The Zone. Announcing.
It's the Big Six, 104.5 Zone, final segment of the show. Amanda Shires right here, Eve's daughter. Her new album, To the Sunset, came out Friday. It's Jason Isbell's wife. I'll be seeing her live on Sunday. Album is fantastic. You should absolutely check it out. Again, our thanks to Warren Sharp. Good reason to go check out the podcast. If you missed any part of this show live, go subscribe. The Big Six with Jason Martin. That's me. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone, by the way. You can subscribe to it. Consume this show however you wish to do so. So, we did this last week. Let's do it again. It happened again. President Trump removed his invitation to the Philadelphia Eagles a few days ago when he learned that 10 out of the whole team were actually going to accept. Wait, wait, what? Now, the Big Six asks, why is this a thing? So he puts out a statement a few days ago. It's not surprising at all. Winning a championship is special. There's no surprise there. Now, I looked it up. The tradition of sports teams visiting the White House dates back to 1865. Brooklyn Atlantics, Washington Nationals. U.S. Grant brought the Cincinnati Red Stockings in 1869. Washington Senators in 1924 visited Coolidge. JFK brings in the Celtics in 63. IU, first NCAA basketball champion, Gerald Ford in 76, first Super Bowl champion, the Steelers, with Jimmy Carter in 1980, with the Pirates in a dual ceremony. And it was Reagan who made the practice a regular occurrence. He was a huge sports fan. These days, about a dozen pro or major college teams visit the White House each year. Gino Ariema has been there like 10 times. Alabama football has been there a good bit. San Francisco Giants have been there a bit. Jimmy Johnson and his NASCAR team have been there many times. But folks, why, why is this a thing? Like, there is no reason for this to be a thing. And it needs to stop being a thing. All it really does now is expose the politics of players who decide not to go. And now it also causes problems on those that do choose to go. I don't care a bit who's in the office. That's irrelevant to me. This is a completely unnecessary waste of time that allows for hot take artists in the media or opportunists to go after whatever side they disagree with and go after those those players. We need to stop placing athletes or anybody else for that matter in non-essential places and in non-essential situations where they either take a stand or they somehow also give away their thoughts just by having to make a decision or not make a decision. It should be. It would be a cool thing, but it's just not. It's stupid. The charity work that the teams do during this trip, they can do it without this trip. I am so tired, and I know I'm not alone, of the stories of this guy not going or this team not going, whether it's Golden State or the Eagles or whoever, or Tim Thomas back in the day with Obama. or And I'm tired of one of the first questions the media asks of somebody after they win a championship now being, what are your plans for the White House? The plans for players need to go back to just being Disney World. That commercial always works. We all love the mouse. The plans for the president should be running and protecting the country. There is no reason whatsoever 
why these two roads need to intersect. We don't care when they go. It's not some great moment. It's usually just an awkward photo session and like a one-minute item at the end of a sports or at the end of a newscast to fill time. So it's time to kill this practice dead. It may have made sense when patriotism was in a different place because it was and should be an honor to get a White House invite, but it no longer is, and it just doesn't make any sense. POTUS tweeted out, the Philadelphia Eagles are unable to come to the White House with their full team to be celebrated tomorrow. They disagree with their president because he insists that they proudly stand for the national anthem. Maybe I can understand why it was a thing, but in 2018, I ask you, why is this still a thing? It's time to go with this thing. It's time to say bye, Felicia, to these White House visits. We got one more minute. Let's make you smarter. We call it this. So the Browns are on hard knocks. The Browns don't win a lot of football games. I don't think that that's news to anybody. One in 31 over the last two years on no wins last year. How about the last five years and some of the first round picks from the Cleveland Browns? A list from Scott Kazmar, Trent Richardson, Brandon Whedon, Barcavius Mingo, Justin Gilbert, Johnny Manziel, Danny Shelton, Cameron Irving, and Corey Coleman. Can you imagine having the level of picks in the first round that the Cleveland Browns have had over the last five years and botching eight of them, eight of them to that degree? Global Golf Radio, Barney Allery, my favorite Canadian. He's next. He'll get you all set for this weekend's PGA Championship in St. Louis and plenty more. We are off tomorrow. Tennessee Titans are not. They're playing football. They'll guest host the Big Six tomorrow. My name is Jason Martin. I will see you on Friday. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless and good night.